Would you please open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 9? Matthew chapter 9. And if you can, I'll, I'll invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Let's read verses 1 through 8. And getting to a boat, Jesus crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. You may be seated. Oh, Lord, we, we ask you to help us. We are needy. We are feeble, weak. What we are doing right now, it's spiritual, supernatural. So we cry out for your help, Lord. Help me to be faithful. Help this church to be faithful. As our dear sister Charlene remind us, we want to lift up all the families that were involved with the 9-11. Lord, we pray that you'd be comforting them, being a father to the fatherless, being a husband to the widows, drawing those who don't know, who do not know you, to the cross, that they would find all their comfort in the cross of Jesus. Be magnified right now, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I came ac- uh, across an article from the Johns Hopkins. Uh, the Ho- John Hopkins Medicine Journal, and they had a, an article uh, talk about forgiveness. And it says, studies have found that the act of forgiveness can reap huge rewards for your health, lowering the risk of heart attack, improving cholesterol levels, and sleep, and reducing pain, blood pressure, and levels of anxiety, depression, and stress. And research points to an increase in the forgiveness health connection as you age. Sadly, so much of forgiveness in our culture is related to the me, the self, what I gain about forgiveness, and is deeply connected to health benefits. And everybody wants to be health. Who wants to be sick? <laughs> right? Nobody wants to be sick. So... It's something that's selling a lot. It's just that we will help you, that we will improve your health. And you may say, oh, but that's outside the church. 
Sadly, that's all we see so much inside the church as the talk of forgiveness permeates the church is you need to forgive. You need to forgive for you to feel better. They, they even say forgiveness is the releasing of a prisoner and that prisoner is who? You, yourself. It's all about you. As if God, when He forgives, He's releasing Himself somehow. So my, my prayer is that as we study, as we have been studying the whole development of forgiveness from Genesis 3 to Revelation 22, that the Lord truly would humble us, that He would empower us and help us to see how forgiveness must be dictated by His own character and His own revelation. We don't decide how forgiveness must be like. We don't have the authority to decide what forgiveness must look like. We need to humble ourselves and say, God, You are God. You are perfectly forgiving. Let me learn from You what forgiveness is like. Less of me, less of us, and more of God. Let us have a, a forgiveness, something that's God-centered, not me-centered. God-centered, amen? So, so that's my hope as we are walking. Today we're going to finish the whole biblical theology, and then next Lord's Day we're going to start tackling some other aspects of forgiveness. But as we, we finish tracing this whole history from Genesis to Revelation, my prayer, my hope is that we are just removing ourselves and letting God's Word inform us. Amen? Teach us. Help us. So, here's the outline of this morning uh, sermon. We're going to be walking through the Gospels and forgiveness. So, we're going to be running here. Not, not even walking. We're going to be running. We're going to be journeying through Acts and forgiveness. Then we move to the Epistles, the letters and forgiveness. And then, oh, the, the last step is Revelation. Revelation and forgiveness. So just as we bring to mind what we saw last Lord's Day, we stop with tracing the whole Old Testament theology of forgiveness, seeing how it's developing. What was so vital to see is how God had promised since Genesis 3 that through the seed of the woman, a sacrifice would be happening in order to undo the fall, to reverse the fall, the curse and that would be the Messiah that is developed throughout the Old Testament, through the whole sacrificial system, and then culminating, especially with the prophet saying that that sacrificial system was pointing actually to the seed, the Messiah. And then you have Isaiah, Isaiah 53, talking about the suffering servant, the Son of Man who would come and be the, the Passover lamb. He would be the, the, the goat, from the, the two goats from the Day of Atonement. So bringing to conclusion the aspects. So as we come to the Gospels, the great expectation of forgive, forgiveness of sins arrives in Jesus. The whole story of Jesus' life from infancy to ascension is dominated by the account of His mission to provide forgiveness. But as we come to the Gospels, there is one character before Jesus. What is His name? John. John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. He's an important person in the whole redemptive history because he serves as a bridge between the whole Old Testament and the New Testament. 
the old covenant and the new covenant. So John the Baptist is a prophet inspired by the Holy Spirit who is functioning as a bridge between the expectation of forgiveness and the arrival of forgiveness of sins. And you can open your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. And before the birth of Christ, there is the birth of John, John the Baptist. And there is Zechariah's prophecy, if you come to verse 67. Verse 67. And his father Zechariah, filled with the Holy Spirit, prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hands of all who hate us. But then as you move on to verses 76 and 78, as Zechariah continues to develop this prophecy about John the Baptist, he says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give knowledge of salvation to his people, how? In the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God. So Zechariah is already connecting forgiveness of sins with the deliverance, with salvation of his people. Something that the angel will tell Joseph. Joseph, you need to tell Mary that the baby's name is going to be Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. Start seeing how forgiveness of sins and salvation is, they're, they're inseparable. So John the baptizer, John the Baptist, he comes to prepare the way for the Lord Jesus to come with the forgiveness of sins. And what was the message of John the Baptist? If you could make a summary of John the Baptist preaching, what, what was he preaching? Repent. Repent for the forgiveness of sins and be baptized. So he was bringing people into the Jordan River and he was just telling them, you need to repent, repent of your sins and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Uh, what happened if people did not repent? Was there forgiveness? No. So he starts seeing once again, developed from the Old Testament, how repentance is inseparable from dispensing forgiveness. And John the Baptist, he says that he's baptizing with water, but one would come to baptize with whom? The Holy Spirit and fire. That's, I think it's synonym there. Why the Holy Spirit? Because that was the promise of the new covenant. Ezekiel, Joe, Isaiah. That he would pour his spirit upon his people. And the Holy Spirit would do what? Empower people to repent. A new heart. That's why Jesus says in John, I think it's 17. When he tells about he's giving the Holy Spirit to his disciples, the, the Holy Spirit will come to convict the world of sin, to confront. So, what is fascinating about, think about John the Baptist, he comes from a priestly family. He's from a priestly family. And instead of taking people to the temple, he's bringing people where? To the Jordan River. You start seeing a shift here. There's a change. David Garland, he says, the repentance... John called for, did not require going to the temple to offer sacrifice for sins or fasting or putting on sackcloth and ashes or any other self-mortifying measures. 
nor did one have to withdraw to some desert hermitage. The divinely sanctioned way of repentance took one down by the Jordan instead up, instead of up in Jerusalem. John came from a priestly family but did not act as a priest. John's ministry reveals that God was now bypassing the temple in its coat. I think it's a wonderful quote, but I'll, I'll just change a little bit. Because yes, he's acting as a priest, a priest of the new covenant. And he's not bypassing the temple. He understands that now the true temple and the true sacrifice have arrived. That's why when you go to the Gospel of John, John the Baptist says, Behold, as Jesus is coming towards him, he says, Behold the Lamb, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So John the Baptist sees Jesus as the fulfillment of the whole sacrificial system. All those sacrifices in the temple, they were pointing to Jesus Christ. That's why he's no longer taking people to the temple. But he's pointing them to Christ, who is the true temple. So, as we come to Jesus, moving from John the Baptist, or the baptized to Jesus, we see now fully this change, this shift from the temple to the person of Christ. Christ Jesus is the true temple, the true tabernacle, where God's glorious presence dwells. So we see, we saw in Matthew, we are reading Matthew chapter 9. And we can go back there to Matthew chapter 9 and this well-known story of the paralytic. Remember, his friends bring him, they make a, a hole through the roof and they lower him down. And Jesus says that Jesus seeing, beholding their faith, and faith is always connected to repentance. There is no true saving faith without repentance and there is no true repentance without saving faith. They're always together. So Jesus, seeing their faith, their repentance, forsaking the old life, seeking Jesus, Jesus says what to the paralytic? You'd expect him to say, you are healed, you're restored. But he says, no, your sins are forgiven. Why? The greatest need of that man was not to walk physically, but to walk spiritually. So that's what Jesus is doing. Your sins, because of your faith and your repentance, your sins are forgiven. And then what happens? The religious leaders, they start to grumble and murmur. Who is this man? Only God can forgive sins. And, he and God forgives sins in the temple. So who is this man now behaving as God and thinking that he is the temple? Because in the Old Testament, you read the prophets and they'll declare God has forgiven you. Or the priests, they would say, God has forgiven you. Think about Nathan when he confronts David. He says, Nathan, Nathan says, David, your sins, God has removed your sins from you. But no one would say, your sins are forgiven as God himself. And that's what Jesus is doing. And that just, it's scandalous, it's scandalous. And Jesus says, are you scandalous by that? Let me scandalize even more. What is harder? What is harder to say? Your sins are forgiven or raise up and walk? To show that I am the son of man. And then he says, who has authority to forgive sins on earth. Meaning, there is a shift, there is a change. God is no longer forgiving sins in heaven. He is forgiving sins where? On earth, through whom? Jesus Christ. So he's, Jesus is already showing this change that's taking place with his coming. You can open all your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. Jump there to Luke chapter 7. 
Uh, another beautiful story of Jesus forgiving a sinful woman. Remember that woman comes to the house of Simon. Luke chapter 7. Starting verse 36. And this woman comes in repentance. How do we know that she was repenting of her sins? Her humility. Humiliation. She falls at Jesus' feet. She's weeping. She's kissing His feet. She's washing His feet with with her tears. She breaks the extremely expensive jar of perfume. Showing her repentance, her faith. And then people start to grumble, to complain. Do you remember that, that story? And then Jesus says, let me just go back here. I don't have here, but you have in your Bible. In chapter 7, look at verse 48. He says, And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Why? That place is hostile. That place is not good for you. It's a bunch of unforgiving people here. You need a community of forgiven people who loves to forgive. Get out of this house here, woman. You don't need to be here. You have peace with God. Your sins have been forgiven. Just, just, why are you going to be here? Just go, go home. You have peace with the most important one. Your sins have been forgiven. And you see their question, who, who is this guy now to forgive sins? And it's in this context that Jesus says in verse 47, those beautiful words. He uh, says, therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little... Loves little. Meaning what? It's not that there is little forgiveness and a lot of forgiveness. It's your realization of how sinful you are, how much you need to be forgiven. And those who understand, those who understand the depravity of their sins, they always understand how much they have been forgiven. It's not that, oh, I, I was raised in a Christian home, so I had little sins to be forgiven. No. Everybody is worthy of hell by nature, by birth. And everyone who is forgiven has been forgiven much. And those who understand how much they have been forgiven, they will love much. Love much the Lord, love the others much. Amen? Uh, Luke chapter 23, also we see Jesus forgiving. Does He forgive both rebels who are being crucified or just one? Just one. Why? Just one who repents and professes his faith, confesses his sins. So that's very important. And we know that he repented because when you read the other accounts, you know that both of them were mocking Jesus. And somehow during the crucifixion process, he realizes that that is the Son of God. And he says, now, why are we mocking him? Please forgive me. Take me with you. (laughs) Let me be with you in your kingdom. And Jesus says what? Today, today you will be in paradise. The word for garden. In the new Eden with me. So, 
all these different stories about forgiveness of sins in the gospel show us the agreement with John the Baptist that the true temple, the perfect sacrifice for forgiveness of sins are found in Christ alone. So I like what Gregory Beale, he, he says, he says, the temple was the divinely instituted place where sacrifices were offered for the forgiveness of sins. But now Jesus has become the divinely instituted location where forgiveness is to be found. Since he himself is also the sin offering. Amen. So we see the fulfillment of all the typology, all the prophecies about the temple, the sacrifice coming to Jesus. Uh, also, we think Luke chapter 4. In Luke chapter 4, another important, but we're not going to spend time there. But just so you, if you're taking notes, Luke chapter 4, when Jesus goes to Nazareth and, and he preaches a sermon on Isaiah 61. And Isaiah 61 is talking about the year of Jubilee, how the Messiah would bring about the year of the Jubilee. And what was the year of Jubilee? A year of forgiveness. The canceling of debt, the releasing of slaves. And Jesus says that, that's taking place right now. So, we see Jesus not only forgiving, but also teaching about forgiveness. So, Jesus taught frequently about forgiveness of sins. We don't have time to go through all the texts. Uh, I think the most important of his teachings is when he's teaching about the Lord's Supper. When he's instituting the Lord's Supper, and he commands the church to do that, to partake of the cup. Why? Because it's a proclamation of his death, his blood for the forgiveness of sins. So, uh, one other important teaching about forgiveness is after his death, when he is resurrected. So, during his life, even when he's dying, he's forgiving. And then after he dies and he's resurrected, he also preaches about forgiveness. So, in Luke chapter 24, verses 45 through 47, Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it's written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaiming his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So, Jesus is doing what we did last two Sundays, just going through the whole Old Testament and say, Hey, do you see? The whole Old Testament was about this. Repentance and forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. And that must be proclaimed to all the nations. All the nations. Uh, John chapter 20. It's uh, At first when you read that, you, you get kind of confused. And it's just a weird... Why is Jesus saying that to the disciples? So in John chapter 20, it says in verses 22 through 23... After his resurrection, and when he had said this, he breathed on them. What is that? Taking us back to Genesis 1. There is a new creation here. Just like in Genesis, God breathed on Adam to create life. Now Jesus is breathing on this new humanity in him. And then he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And suddenly, wait a second. And then he says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it's withheld. So, brothers and sisters, do you see that there is a time to withhold forgiveness? Can you see here? There is a time to withhold forgiveness. Jesus says that. And if, we th we, and if you, the church, withhold forgiveness, it is. It's done. That's interesting. We are never taught that. We are, we are taught that you must forgive always. You must always forgive. You've got to always be forgiving. And we see right here, Jesus said to the church, and if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. It's accomplished in heaven else. 
I'll invite James Hamilton to help us. He says, God made provision for sin under the old covenant through the sacrificial system, operative at the temple. God was present there, and there they could offer sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. The giving and withholding of forgiveness in John 20 is another way of describing the binding and loosing on earth and in heaven in Matthew 16. What does it mean? It means that the church has the authority to assure those who repent of their sin and trust in Christ that their sins are forgiven. And the church has authority to say that those who do not repent and believe that they are not part of the church and have no reason to think that their sins have been forgiven. The church has the ability to assure those who believe Jesus and repent of sin that they are indwelled by the Spirit and thus part of the temple of God. Likewise, the church warns those who do not repent and believe that they are not part of the temple, have not the Spirit, and are without God in the world. That's what we are doing today as we celebrate baptism. As a church, we are declaring, you are part of God's family. The Lord has given the authority to the church. And when we excommunicate someone, we are saying what? By your life, you do not demonstrate that you belong to God. You do not belong to Christ, unwilling to repent of your sins. And we should not be forgiving. We need to withhold forgiveness. Because there is no repentance, there is no change. Why? Because he's breathing now, and the spirit that was in the temple is now in the church. Helping the church with this. Uh, and of course, there is that beautiful passage when Jesus dies. And remember that the veil, the veil of the temple is torn apart, implying the forgiveness. Now the access to God. Now we can see his smiling face. We can come to him. Uh, so a lot of about forgiveness. Just one more here. As we think about Jesus, forgiveness and imprecatory words. That's something that we often skip and try to avoid that. But in our theology of forgiveness, we must have space for these things. We must have a place for this. And we know that Jesus is the embodiment of forgiveness. He's the embodiment of love. No one can be as forgiving as he was. He's perfect. But he's also holy, righteous, and just. Amen? And we know that Jesus taught the church to do a church discipline, excommunicate someone who is unwilling to repent and is blaspheming his name. But wait a second, I thought that we were supposed to forgive always. If we were supposed to forgive always, no matter what, there would be no reason for church discipline. Amen? If we are supposed to always forgive no matter what, why would Jesus teach us about church discipline? Oh, he's in sin. That's okay. That's okay. Just embrace him back. Just pretend that nothing is happening. So we, we cannot suddenly say, uh, we must be always forgiving. But So yeah, so maybe we should not have church discipline. You see? Or how about in Matthew 23, when Jesus starts... A series of woe. Woe to you, Pharisees and scribes. Woe to you. Woe to you. What is woe? That comes from the Old Testament. And it's a call of damnation. Condemnation. It's an imprecatory call. And Jesus is calling upon them. 
This week I was talking to a pastor friend of mine and I asked him, honestly, I want to know, what do you think about the imprecatory prayers in the Bible? And he said, oh, I, I believe in them, but in the Old Testament, the, the enemies of God were physical. In the new, under the New Covenant, the, spirits are, uh, the enemies are spiritual. And I said, yeah, but they still are using people. And when Jesus calls the imprecatory prayers and the rest of the New Testament, they call them people. Jesus says, woe to you, Pharisees and Sadducees. They're people. And then he's like, huh, I hadn't thought about that. So we see that Jesus forgives. He loves to forgive. His heart is ready to forgive those who repent. And at the same time, he's holy, righteous, full of perfect anger and wrath. And we need to understand that the call to be forgiving does not contradict the call for God to judge. We have this mentality that to be forgiving somehow erases and blocks the idea that we can call God for judgment upon certain people. All right, let's move to Acts. Acts. We call it the Acts of the Apostles, but it's actually the Acts of the Lord Jesus, right? The whole book is about Jesus now acting from heaven. And, and once again, we see the reason Jesus keeps forgiving and proclaiming forgiveness. And uh, very crucial to the book of Acts is the work of the Holy Spirit, showing that that's the fulfillment of the new covenant when the Spirit would come and empower God's people to repent, receive forgiveness. Also, as I said earlier, it's, we, we must keep in mind Jesus, it's not John 17, but it's John 16, when he says that he will send the parakletos, he will send the Holy Spirit to do a, to convict the world of sin. So that's the importance of the Holy Spirit. And we see it taking place right early in Acts. So in Acts chapter 2, after Peter preaches, and they say, what, what shall we do to be saved? And he says, repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I like what Ekhen Schnabel, he writes, he says, As a result of the life, death, resurrection, exaltation of Jesus, the former means of atonement for sins, that is, the temple sacrifices, immersion for ritual purification, obedience to the law, are no longer effective. As the last days have arrived with the coming of the Messiah, forgiveness comes only through Jesus Christ. And that's what Peter is telling them. It's not go to the temple. No, go to Christ. Embrace Him and you will be forgiven. And show that through water baptism. Uh, Acts chapter 5. Wonderful text when the High priest is prohibiting the disciples to preach. Remember, he says, you, you shall not preach the name of Jesus anymore. And Peter replies, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a, on a tree. And then look how he says, God exalted him at his right hand as leader, prince, and savior to do what? To give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Think about that, how crucial repentance is that Jesus has to be raised, ascended, 
in order to give his people what they need the most, a repentant heart to receive forgiveness of sins. So the, the whole, think of how, how glorious it is, the whole plan of salvation, that Jesus would come as a man, humble himself to the point of a cross, die, and now he's raised up to give to the true Israel repentance so they can embrace forgiveness of sins. Also, if you're in Acts chapter 5, it's in Acts chapter 5 that we have the, I would say, crazy story about Ananias and Sapphira. Traumatizing story. What happened to Ananias and Sapphira? They are excommunicated from the church through execution. They're excommunicated through execution by God Himself. God who is all-forgiving, He's holy and righteous. And we must keep this in mind. We cannot create an idol for ourselves. I think the problem is we are creating a God who is not the God of the Bible. And it says in Acts chapter 5, verse 11, right after the death of Ananias and Sapphira, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. And that takes us back to last Lord's Day when we saw in the Psalm, Psalm 130, verse 4. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. So God's forgiving heart, His forgiveness, and His execution of judgment are supposed to create in us, in creating us awe, reverence, fear. Amen? Both aspects of God's character. His righteousness, His holiness, His judgment, and His mercy, His forgiveness are to create in us fear, reverence, awe. There are other texts, but we don't have time. We could go to Acts chapter 10, verse 43, Acts chapter 13, verse 38, but we will skip. And let's move to, towards the end of the book of Acts. That's when Paul talks about his calling, when God called him to be an apostle, a preacher. Acts chapter 26, verses 15 through 18. Jesus tells Saul, but rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me. And then he goes on to say, I'm sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they, they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That's beautiful. You think about Saul who becomes Paul. He, he is a trophy. He is a trophy of God's forgiveness. Think about forgiveness of God. And, and Paul, in the book of Acts, he's a trophy to the display of all to behold and see. A man who used to hate Jesus, a man who used to persecute the church. Christ shows up, he repents of his sins, he believes in Christ, he is forgiven, and then he becomes the greatest preacher of forgiveness of sins. Paul. So it's a beautiful, beautiful picture that we have in Paul. And as we're talking about Paul, we can move to the letters. And especially Paul's letters, so we move from Romans to Jude. And that's the whole body of epistles. You have Pauline epistles, then you have the general epistles. It's a whole body. We don't have time to go, but think about Paul's letters, starting with Paul's letter. Paul doesn't use so much the, word, the Greek word for forgiveness, but he's constantly using language of forgiveness. He might not use the word forgiveness itself, but he's talking about forgiveness as being justified. 
We have been justified. What is, it? what is that? That is to be forgiven by God. He talks about being washed. What is that? Being forgiven. So Paul might not use the word forgiveness frequently, but forgiveness is a major theme of Paul's theology. That we have been forgiven by God. So he talks about forgiveness in Ephesians 1, verse 7, Colossians 1, verse 14. And then he tells us also in Colossians and in Ephesians that we are to forgive one another. Just as God has forgiven us in Christ. So Paul is talking about forgiveness. And especially in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. What is 1 Corinthians 13 all about? Love. That's the love chapter. The love chapter is in the context of divisions and problems in a local church. Remember the church is divided. People arguing about their own gifts. And Paul brings the, the, the theology of love. Meaning that's the engine of the church. There is no way for a church to thrive and survive just with gifts. You need to have love for one another. And Paul says in verse 5, that the ESV says, love is not resentful. I, I prefer the other translations like the NAS, NIV, that says that love keeps no record of wrongs. That's a better Greek translation here. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Why? What is he implying here? Love delights to forgive. To be unforgiving is to always walk around with a piece of paper and a pen writing down every single wrong towards you. Every single wrong. And then what happens? You're showing. Whenever there's something, you show that record of wrongs. You have done all these things to me. We, we can't live in a community like that. We cannot live in families like that. We cannot live in the church family like that. That's why Paul says, love keeps no record of wrongs. And when there's something wrong, you need to go to that person and confront. And when it's not that bad, just overlook. Throw away. Throw away that notepad. Break the pencil. Because that's not loving. When somebody sins against you, you go straight right there and confront that person. says, I love you. I love you. But you have sinned against me this way. Instead of keeping records. And that's what people do, especially when they leave a church. Then they have a list. I had no idea that was that horrible. I had no idea that we were that bad. You never confronted us. You never told us anything. Because when it's time, then you need to confront. Say, hey. Here's what's happening. Here, I believe that's sin. Amen? But Paul is indeed a, a preacher of forgiveness. He has been forgiven much. He loves much. But also, just like with Jesus, let me just go back here. We cannot forget that Paul also has imprecatory prayers. Huh. So, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 22, look at the loving... Apostle, the forgiving apostle says, If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be what? Accursed. Let me ask you, are you embarrassed by that? Are you ashamed by this? He's inspired by the Holy Spirit. That's God Himself speaking that. 
And that's how he's saying bye to the whole church. That's towards the end of the letter. He comes to the benediction. If anyone does not love the Lord, let him be anathema. Galatians 1.8 But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be what? A curse. Let him go to hell. And that's men with flesh, blood, and bone that Paul is saying these things. Paul also commands the church, the same Paul who preached on 1 Corinthians 13 about love, he's the same one who in chapter 5 told the church to excommunicate someone who is unwilling to repent. So being forgiving does not erase the call to be holy. 1 John, as we keep moving, and we need to, to keep these things in mind because if we want to grow and have an understanding of forgiveness, we cannot erase these texts as if they don't apply to us. We cannot say, I don't like this text. That's the whole counsel of God. We need to learn how to live the Christian life where God calls us to be forgiving and calls us to be holy, discerning. Amen? We need that. And that's why we are tracing. We're not running away. Because the easy thing to do is to, uh, oh, let's learn about forgiveness and completely forget and ignore these texts. As if they don't exist. Then we have a serious problem in our spiritual life. There is no contradiction in being forgiving and yeah, calling God to judge certain people. There is no contradiction. We are not God, calling God to judge and bring condemnation upon a man or a woman who cut us in traffic. Right? That's not it. Or because our spouse didn't do what we want. Or somebody in the work was rude to us. That's not it. But when the sin is affecting the name of Christ, the, the propagation of the gospel, the life of the church, we can and we must. Thinking about, let's suppose you get fired by your job. And that has nothing to do with Christ. You just got fired. And it was unjust. They should not have fired you. They fired you. Uh, somebody lied about you. Somebody did something. That's no reason to call on God's judgment. But if they fire you because of the gospel of Christ, because you hold to Jesus Christ, because you believe in the gospel, and they fire you because of their hate, I think we biblically can. Lord, do not prosper that place. Do not prosper that place. They hate you. And we have biblical grounds to do that. And you still be forgiving and loving and have no bitterness. I'm calling God to avenge. That's what the Bible tells us to do. We call God to judge. I'm not judging. Lord, it's your name. It's your kingdom. It's your glorious gospel that is being blasphemed. The letter of John. We don't have time, but... 
the first first John, second John, third John talks a lot about forgiveness. Uh, beautiful text is first John verses seven through ten. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sins. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, look at that. If we confess our sins, what happens if we don't confess our sins? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. That's why there is no such thing as you need to forgive yourself. God has forgiven you. What else do you need? God has forgiven you. And now you think you're greater than God and you need to forgive yourself? God has forgiven you. He's faithful. Faithful to His covenantal promises. I will forgive their sins and I will remember their iniquity no more. And he's righteous. He accomplished that forgiveness in the death of his son, Jesus Christ. So we don't walk in guilt. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us and cleanse us. Amen? Amen. Could go to the book of Revelation. The whole book of uh, Revelation or Hebrews is an exposition of the whole sacrificial system. How Jesus fulfills the day of atonement. How Jesus is the fulfillment bringing forgiveness of sins. But we don't have time. Amen. We go to Revelation. Let's, let's just skip to the book of Revelation. Okay. Because I can see the time is flying here. Book of Revelation. Uh, the book of Revelation I think is just bringing the whole drum of forgiveness to an end. And actually, the, the book of Reve Revelation recapitulates the whole story of forgiveness from Genesis to the consummation of all things. Uh, also, just like with Paul, the, the main Greek words for forgiveness, they don't appear, but it doesn't matter. Because there's so much in the Bible about forgiveness that does not use the word forgiveness, but use imagery. To be washed, to be healed. Healing is a symbol of forgiveness. To be washed. To have new robes. It's all pictures of being forgiven. And we see that throughout the book of Revelation over and over again. So Revelation opens up by declaring the glorious forgiveness that we have in Christ Jesus. So chapter 1 verses 5 through 6 tells us that he has loved us. He has loved us and he has freed us from our sins. What is that? Forgiveness. He has forgiven us. So the book of Revelation opens by saying, you have been forgiven and now you are a kingdom of priests. Taking us back to the Garden of Eden where Adam was created to be a king and a priest to God. And he failed and now in Jesus who is the perfect king and priest, we who are in him forgiven, now we have this calling to be a kingdom of priests. Revelation chapter 2 and 3, you can see in your Bibles, Revelation chapter 2 and 3 is Jesus walking through the churches. And he's walking among the local churches and he's calling all the churches but two to do what? To repent. He calls all the five churches, only two he does not call to repent. But the other ones he calls them to repent. And if they repent, they will receive forgiveness of sins. And if they don't repent, what will he do? Ignore? He will judge them. And if you do not repent, I will remove the lampstand. 
I will remove my presence from, from you and you're going to die in darkness. But his call is repent. Turn to me. Turn with, to me in to Revelation chapter 5. And that's the heart. Revelation 4 and 5 is the heart of the whole book. It's from here that's flowing everything. And we see Jesus in chapter 5 as he takes his place. Verse 9, and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take this crow and open its seals, for you were is lame. Here's the Passover lamb. Here's the, the goat of the Day of Atonement. You were slain by your blood. You ransomed people for God. Meaning you forgave people with your blood. The heart of revelation is the death of Christ. And you, we are going to be singing for all eternity the forgiveness that we have in Christ Jesus. Amen? We're going to sing for all eternity. That's why we need to start now with joy, singing to the Lord. That's what we're going to do. He redeemed us. He forgave us. And then turn with me to Revelation chapter 6 as he's opening the seals, showing his authority and, and his judgments upon the earth and his salvation. And in Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, we have the fifth num seal of number 5 being opened. And it's amazing. Where are these martyrs? Where are they at? Under the altar. Where is the altar? In heaven. They are in heaven. And they're under the altar because they're pictured as this beautiful sacrifice. They follow Jesus unto death. And just like Jesus, they were sacrificed. And they're under the altar as a, a, a sweet aroma before God. They are in heaven. Let me ask you, all of us here, is anybody here more perfected in love than those saints? Can anybody here say, hey, I know more about love and forgiveness than those saints in heaven? No. Do you know why? Because there is no sin in heaven. There is no sin in them. They have been perfected. They're there. And look how they're crying out. And they cried out. And that's a, it's a terminology of calling for justice in the Old Testament. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you forgive them? How long until you forgive them? Is that what they're crying out? That's an imprecatory prayer. They are in heaven. They are more glorified than all of us together here. Perfected. And they are crying out what? How long? How long, O oh Lord? True and holy. Before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Hmm. Hmm. Hmm, hmm. They are in heaven, and you'd think that they would be crying out, How long, O Lord, until you forgive them? Until you judge them and avenge our blood. Why? Because they killed them because of Christ and the gospel. 
This is a cry for God's vindication of himself and his people, not for personal revenge. These, these saints, they're fully satisfied in God. They have been perfected in heaven, no sin in their lives, and yet they cry out for God's wrath upon these people. So whatever theology of forgiveness you have, you must have a place for this. Otherwise, you have an idol. You have an idol, and that's not biblical. We must embrace the imprecatory prayers, church discipline, the withholding of forgiveness when necessary in our theology of forgiveness and not be scandalized by these truths. If we are scandalized by these things, could be immaturity on our part, but ultimately sin. Because we think that we know better about love, forgiveness than God himself. And then we must repent. Say, Lord, forgive me. Forgive me for thinking that I know more about love and forgiveness than you. And Lord, help me. Help me to be balanced in my understanding that I'm called to be forgiving and I'm called to be holy and I'm called to call you to avenge and pour out your wrath on sin. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. So, I pray that as we are walking through these scriptures, the Lord will help us. We have been fed an imbalanced diet of God's character. And especially when it comes to the theme of forgiveness. It's all about you must forgive, you must be forgiven, you must love, you must love, you love. Wait a second. There is more to the Bible than that. The same Jesus that calls me to pray for my, pers- for, for my perse- persecutors, he also called me to pray imprecatory prayers upon them. In our uh, biblical understanding of forgiveness, we must have room and space for imprecatory words, the withholding of forgiveness of those who refuse to repent, and the act of excommunication. That's what we don't see in books about forgiveness. We don't see that. That's why so many people get shocked when you say, hey, I can't forgive that person. There's no repentance. There's no repentance. There's no confession of sin. I can't forgive. That would be ungodly. Not God-like, not Christ-like. I cannot be bitter. The Bible prohibits me of being bitter. I cannot pursue my own personal vengeance. But it's a godly thing to say, Lord, you are the judge. You are the judge. Bring justice upon this situation. They are blaspheming your holy name. You know how much I love your kingdom, how much I love your church. I love Christ. Crush them, Lord, for your name's sake, without bitterness without bitterness, and still being forgiving, loving, kind, joyful. That was Christ. 
That's our God, and that has been so many saints. And to finish, we need to finish here. So, let's go to the last two chapters of this drama, the end of the drama. The last two chapters of Revelation show what happens to those who are forgiven and those who have not been forgiven. And what happens is the same thing that took place in Genesis chapter 3. Because of sin, what happens? Adam and Eve, they're expelled from the garden. Outside the garden gates, the gate is closed and guarded. But when it comes to Revelation 21 and 22, those who are forgiven, they're what? Inside the gates. The exodus took place. The journey of the goat in the day of atonement. We come into God's presence and we behold His face. Revelation 21, 22, sorry. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and His servants will serve Him. We who once were slaves of sin now are slaves of Christ. They will see His face. That's the whole purpose. Dwelling before God. Beholding His face. The Lord bless you and keep you. Make His face shine upon you. That's what we are doing. Beholding His face. And His name will be on their foreheads. The curse of sin is removed. You can see in, in Revelation 22, verse 2, that there is the tree of life. We have access to the tree of life. That's Christ Himself. And the healing, the healing of the nations, that is forgiveness. That's why he can say that cur- there will be no more cursing. There, there was forgiveness inside the gates. And then in verse 22, verses 14 through 15, Blessed are those who wash their robes. That's another picture of forgiveness. They have their robes washed in Jesus' blood so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside there are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and the murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. All those who are not forgiven. The same picture. One goat going east, another going west into God's presence. The question of the Old Testament was, who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord? Adam was cast out of God's mountain, Eden. Who shall ascend? And the picture is of one who is blameless, one who is forgiven, clean hands, one who was forgiven. And then through Christ, that's answered, we ascend the mountain of God, the city garden. The gates are open for us, and outside are those who are not forgiven. The exile of Adam is finally reversed. The gates of a greater Eden are wide open for those forgiven in the seed of the woman. We can enter the city gates and enjoy the presence of God for all eternity because of the forgiveness that we have in the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So that's the drum of forgiveness. The drum of forgiveness is the drama of a holy God who is opening and preparing a way for His people to come into His presence by forgiving their sins. And He does everything for His people. He provides what we need. He provides forgiveness and He provides repentance. That's why Peter says that he was raised to the right hand of God to give his people repentance for forgiveness of sins. The glorious drama with Christ in the center. And now all those 
who are in Christ, those who embrace Jesus Christ, they have access back into God's presence. That's the main picture of forgiveness, to be restored into God's presence. Amen? Oh, Father, we are truly humbled by this whole revelation of who you are and who we are apart from you and who we are in you. We praise you for this glorious, glorious, majestic story of forgiveness starting in Genesis chapter 3 and one day consummated when Jesus Christ comes back. And right now there is the already and not yet. We are already enjoying your presence, the forgiveness of sins. But we know that we have not been glorified yet, as John says. Woe to us if we say that we have no sin. And yet you give us the Holy Spirit to constantly change us and empower us to repent. And come to you and find forgiveness in you, Lord. So thank you. Lord, help us. Help us as a church, Lord. We, we desperately need your help, Lord. This, this subject is, is glorious. It's profound. And it is hard at times, Lord. Forgive us for making an idol. That's not you, Lord. I pray you to help us. Help us to humble ourselves. Put away presuppositions that we had. Help us to embrace your revelation. Our whole purpose is to grow into Christ's likeness, Lord. We want to be like our Savior. You, you, you predestined us. You saved us to be more and more like Jesus. So help us. Help us as a church, Lord, to be forgiving, to be loving, to be merciful. And at the same time, be holy, righteous, just. Deliver us from imbalanced views of you, Lord. We want to be marked by love and forgiveness. That's what we want to be, we want to be marked by, Lord. Being a forgiving church. A church who has been forgiven much and loved much, Lord. And in the rare, in the rare situations, Lord, when we are called to call for your holiness and your judgment, that we will do that in fear and reverence. But deliver us from shame and embarrassment of your holiness and your judgment, Lord. So please help us. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.